You are now listening to the February 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have biblical stewardship, sermon, and refining faith. First, let's begin with biblical stewardship. Hello everyone, this is Brian Winston with Biblical Stewardship. Last time we read Mark chapter 10 together and looked at the story of how one person learned the way to eternal life from Jesus but gave it up because of his great wealth. Wasn't that sad? He couldn't enter into heaven because he loved the wealth he was given more. At the end of our last session, I asked you a question. I told you to answer yourself if wealth is a necessary tool to serve the kingdom of God or is it a stumbling block that prevents you from entering the kingdom of God? How did you answer? Intellectually or rationally? We might say that heaven is more valuable than wealth. However, in our lives, there are many times when our actions are different than our thoughts. Today, we'll read Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12, and gain wisdom regarding our possessions. One person came up to Jesus, who taught a large crowd. He told Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him. It seems like this person's brother didn't share his parents' inheritance with him and kept it all for himself. This person thought it was unfair and thought Jesus' authority would be able to change his brother's heart. To the person who made this request, Jesus said he didn't come to this earth to be a judge or an arbiter for his wealth dispute. Then he told him a valuable word. Let's read Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against wanting to have more and more things. Life is not made up of how much a person has. To the person who was complaining about how his brother wasn't sharing the inheritance, Jesus said to get rid of greed. Then he said the reason is that life is not made of how much a person has. Then Jesus told a parable that we'll be learning about today. All right, let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Then Jesus told them a story. He said, A certain rich man's land produced a very large crop. He thought to himself, What should I do? I don't have any place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I will store my extra grain in them. I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain stored away for many years. Take life easy. Eat drink, and have a good time. But God said to him, You foolish man, tonight I will take your life away from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? That is how it will be for whoever stores things away for themselves but is not rich in the sight of God. Let's think about the rich man who appears in Jesus' parable. His land produced a very large crop, He had an abundant harvest. As he gained plenty of crop during the abundant harvest, what was he thinking of? 
Yes, he began to ponder about where to store it. Then he made this decision. He will tear down his barns and build bigger ones and store the extra grain in them. Then you'll have plenty of grain stored away for many years. He would take life easy, eat, drink, and have a good time. If you were this rich man, how would you react? What if your harvest suddenly increased and became abundant? This is not just about farming. If you run a business, what if your sales suddenly increased? If you work for a company, what if you got a raise in salary? Let me give you a simple example. Let's say that you began to receive $1,000 more each month. What would you think? Would you say, hmm, I've got $1,000 more every month now. What should I buy? There is something I need. Would you be like this and think of all the things you need? Or would you say, hmm, now that I have $1,000 more every month, I should save it for a time when I'll need it. Is there a difference between your thought and the rich man's thought in Jesus' parable? I don't think there's a big difference. Why? It's because we are worrying about how to spend the $1,000 more every month for ourselves. What is God saying to us? Don't you think he'll say the same thing he told the rich man? Wouldn't he rebuke us and say, Foolish one, if you die today, who will get the wealth you collected? That is how it will be for whoever stores things away for themselves, but is not rich in the sight of God. If so, how would a proper Christian react? Yes, one must ask God. From the first session, we confess that everything comes from God. Therefore, if my income has increased by $1,000 every month, I must first ask the Lord how to use it. Lord, why have you given this to me? What do you want me to do with this? This must be the first thought in our mind. Then, if the Lord tells me to buy something for me, I buy it. If he tells me to save it for me, then I do so. If he tells me to use it for him or help someone else, then I follow his word and use it in that way. If we call God our Lord, then to our Lord who entrusted us with wealth, we must ask how to use that wealth. However, if we don't do that and we determine the use of the wealth and use it however we want, then we are claiming that we are the owner of our wealth. Just as Jesus said, we have greed. It's the greed of trying to get something that's not mine. Let's think about what the rich man who gained a lot of crops said. What should I do? I don't have any place to store my crops. Even though he already stored grain in his barn, he is worried about the extra grain which exceeds his need. He is worried about where to store it. He doesn't think about who might need this extra grain. Why is that? It's because he doesn't have a heart for the poor. Do you remember John the Baptist's message towards Israel when he told them to repent? Do you remember how he said anyone who has extra clothes should share with the one who has none? 
and anyone who has extra food should do the same. Do you remember the promise of Zacchaeus who changed after meeting Jesus? He said he would give half his wealth to the poor. People of God's kingdom do not seek their own gain. People of God's kingdom look where God's eyes are and do what pleases him. After Jesus tells the parable of this foolish rich man in Luke chapter 12, he says this in verses 33 and 34. Sell what you own, give to those who are poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. Store up riches in heaven that will never be used up. There, no thief can come near it. There, no moth can destroy it. Your heart will be where your riches are. Selling what I own and giving to the poor, meaning helping the poor and needy, proves that my heart is in heaven. If I have something to eat and I have leftover, then I don't gather it for myself, but share with those in need. This is what the people of heaven must do, and it's the value of the people in God's kingdom. Where our heart is, is what we value. I do not intend to force you to help others. I'm merely telling you Jesus' word. You are the one who will decide. Where are you storing your treasure? This concludes today's session of Biblical Stewardship. Thank you for listening.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is David Defeats the Amalekites. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Uh, you'll remember that 1 Samuel opens up with Eli who has two sons, Phineas and Ferb. I'm just making sure you guys are paying attention. Sometimes I get a feel that maybe y'all aren't paying attention. It's Phineas and Hophni. Just making sure. But they were takers described as worthless men, sons of Belial, uh, who did not know God in 2.12. Now these priests would demand their portion of an offering that was to be given to God up front immediately. And they threatened that if you do not do this, that I am going to take it by force. They're takers. Of course, that reminds me of another taker in this book, another son of Belial, Nabal, who looks so much like Saul, in chapter 25. See, this wasn't God's design for leadership. If you look at the scriptures, the Bible isn't commending these men and their leadership. No, instead, we find in Deuteronomy 17, 15, that God is encouraging his people that he would choose a king for them in the land, a generous king known for not greedily taking, but as a brother from amongst them, who was generous, a giver, and a lover of God's word. Well, in 1 Samuel 8, 5, you'll remember that the people came asking for a king, but they weren't asking for a king like God promised to give them. They were asking for a king like the nations. And so there, you'll remember that God tells them that he will give them the king that they catch this deserve. God describes that king in 1 Samuel 8, 11 to 18. Now let me give you a short abbreviated version of these verses 
And tell me if you pick up in your ear the theme of this king. He says, this king, he will take your sons and send them to fight for me. They will, this king will take your daughters and put them to work for himself. He will take your best land. He will take your best fruit. He will take your best servants. He will take your best animals and you will cry out for a better king. Did you catch that? So often, we don't like the leadership over us, but so often the leadership over us isn't the leadership we want. It's actually the leadership that we deserve. So what kind of king will God give his people? He's a taker. He's literally called a taker six times. That's a snapshot of Saul and every other worldly leader. They are takers who look to rise above their brothers on the goods that they've taken from their brothers. But today we see a better spirit-anointed king chosen by God to lead his people, King David. Now 1 Samuel 30 marks David's movement in the book of 1 Samuel towards the throne. And here's what we're going to see this morning. Our big idea is this, that Jesus is a victorious king who understands what's been taken and gives generous gifts. The Messiah is a brother who understands loss. Now, chapters 28 to 29 take place over three days, and they flow right into chapter 30 where we find ourselves today. Now, Achish, you'll remember that Philistine, has ordered David and his men to join the Philistine fight against Israel in chapter 28. David faked it so good that he was for Achish that Achish invites him to join them in battle against Israel. And the only thing that stopped chapter 29 is the reality that Achish brings in David, and as the other Philistine leaders are watching, they said, man, we're going to have to start calling you crazy horse, because there is no way that we are bringing with us the man that walks into the theme music, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. That is not a good battle plan. And so he says, David, you're going to have to go back. I don't know why, but they won't trust you like I do. And then in verses 1 to 6, they pick up with David returning from that long journey of being rejected by the Philistines. And look at what it says, beginning in verses 1 through 6 again. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David and his men, they've just traveled a hundred miles in that round trip up to Aphek to join Achish in battle, only to discover that the Amalekites had burned their homes when they returned and they had taken all of their wives. They took all of their children and they took all of their servants. The raiders got raided. Remember, that's what David's been doing. And David's legion of doom, who raided the land, including Amalekites, over this 16-month period, you'll remember that they had left no prisoner when they were out, 
And now they are experiencing what it is to have everything taken from them in a moment. All of the losses. You know, that's great loss. You'll remember that Job had everything taken from him. But this is like that and multiplied times 600. As these men together collectively are raising their voices and weeping and weeping until they had no energy or tears to weep anymore. In fact, if you look up that phrase for how they wept until they had no more strength to weep, it actually translates in the English to they ugly cried all day and all night. You can imagine, these are grown men warriors weeping. Now, I can't imagine the scene. Manly men weeping over their losses. They are grieving helplessly. Have you ever found yourself where these guys are? You know, the holidays are really full of hope for many. In fact, many of our nights at the dinner table, as me and Gia are talking to the boys, have them angling for some gift. Uh, We talked about giving our Christmas away, just as a a noble thing to do as Christians, uh, one meal. And we almost didn't make it away from the table alive. But while holidays can be super hopeful for some, you know, they can also be really discouraging for others. In fact, psychology today says that people often seek help for immense sorrow that starts surfacing right around Thanksgiving, right around now. Now, is that you? Do you struggle not to count your many losses, counting them one by one? I'm talking about deep losses. I'm not talking about losing your goldfish or your hamster. Have you experienced deep loss, losing a husband? or a daughter. Maybe your wife has lost her memory of you. Maybe you failed a test that you believe has taken your dream career away and it's out of grasp. Maybe it feels like your health has been taken or even the joy in your marriage is gone and you can't get it back. How do you respond when you experience losses that feel as deep and dark as the ocean? You know, the world can bring the strongest men to their knees in grief. But check out how this band of fearless warriors responds when everything is taken. First, did you catch it? They wept, and then they wanted blood. They wanted to stone the good king. Grief is a crazy thing, and I've learned a lot more than I've ever wanted to know about it over the last decade. But here's one important lesson that I have learned. Hurt people hurt people. It's just a reality. When you are hurting, you want others to hurt. Someone needs to be blamed. Blood needs to be shed. You see this in the scriptures. You remember in Israel. You remember that Moses was leading them in the wilderness. And when the people were hungry and scared, they wanted to stone him. You remember when Jesus showed up on the scene to an Israel nation that was under the rule of Rome. Jesus came promising to be the God-man, claiming to be the God-man, and that he was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. And what did they want to do? The Pharisees, the religious leaders wanted to stone him. But don't miss this. When we feel like much has been taken from us, and we're out for blood, what we really need is a generous king. That's what needs to show up, a generous king. Did you catch a second important detail in these verses? David is not exempt from the losses. Now we know where the story is going. David will be king. We have the end of the story. They're living it in real time. But David experiences in the midst of this story deep loss. And he experiences this with his men, his brothers. He loses his wives. He's a brother who understands the despair of brokenness and bitter pain of loss with his brothers. You know, this is a king who knows what it feels like to be rejected by all. Even the Philistines have rejected him. 
And he has had everything taken for him in a moment. He knows what it's like in his darkest moment to have his very own people turn and want to stone him. And this Messiah isn't hiding from Goliath behind his men like Saul was. He's leading from the front. He fights for them and he weeps with them. He is with them in their victories and he is with them in their losses. You know, I still remember the first time I recognized that Hebrews was calling Jesus, that greater Messiah that has come, our brother. I said, surely I must have misread that. You're telling me that the Alpha and the Omega is my brother. The one who holds the universe up by his very word of power, and if he were to let it go, it would all fall apart. That guy's my brother. The guy that we are told is the king of kings and lord of lords who reigns over all things is my brother. And yet, when you read Hebrews three seventeen to 18, we find that Jesus is indeed our brother Messiah. There, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted Jesus is our greater Messiah who is a king and a priest who knows what it's like to lose everything he is our brother but he's different and that he is the king who gave it all for us for his enemies to make us his brothers but catch catch what this good king does in his distress did you see the end it says david strengthened himself in the lord but how did he do that second notice david seeks the voice of the lord in verses 7 to 10 he seeks the voice of the lord now don't miss this this is a different look for david this is not david from chapter 27 where things are getting hot and he just decides in his own heart he tells himself I need to run to the Philistines lest Saul will slay me and kill me and cause me to perish. He didn't listen to God's voice there. He just ran and acted. He ran and raided the peoples of the land like the Amalekites. For 16 months, he carried out the mafia-style policy of leaving no witnesses. David didn't seek God's face. He became a maverick. Now, this grief and distress was a consequence of his sin that began back there. And now the men want to kill the king, but the king wants to hear God's voice in verses 7 to 10. Notice what they say. This is what it says. David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. So David set out. And the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. See, David doesn't just look different from David here. David actually looks way different than Saul. Now, the way that chapters 27 to 30 are written together, there's a break in chapter 28 for an episode with King Saul. And you remember there, Saul is running to a witch of Endor. Sounds like kind of character out of Lord of the Rings or something. But he is pursuing her to tell him what to do as the Philistine armies that are gathering and have surrounded him are about to come upon him. And he has to because he's killed all of the priests except Abiathar, who's with David. Saul essentially ripped the phone cord out of the wall. That illustration might not make sense. 
Kids, uh, let me just give you a brief history lesson. There used to be a cord that connected every phone to the wall. No cord, no signal, no talkie, right? If you ripped the cord out of the wall, you couldn't use the phone anymore. Well, here it's, it's very similar. It seems as though Saul, in killing the priest, has ripped that line that he had to God out of the wall. Priests were the ones who mediated relationship between the people and God. And so basically Saul is saying, I don't need to hear from God anymore. Saul kills those who can draw people close to God. Uh, Deuteronomy says also that seeking a word from a witch is an abomination. So Saul, Saul's not a good guy. That's too tall Saul. But simultaneously, as he is seeking counsel from this witch, it seems like David is also saying to Abiathar, get God on the line. Do you see it? I want to hear from God. David is distressed. Everything has been taken from him. And he calls for Abiathar, the priest. And I love what he says, grab the ephod, right? The ephod. This was what he would use. He would wear as he, he would go and he would seek to make communication between the king and God. He probably had with him the Urim and the Thummim. I don't know what those are. We don't know what those are. But they were used to communicate with God. And here it simply means that David sought the voice of God in the way that God prescribed in his distress. This is a good move. When distress hits, you're pursuing God. You're not becoming disobedient, but you're seeking God and the means that he's provided. See, David doesn't just act like he did in 1 Samuel 27. David asks God, whether he should chase after the Amalekites or not. And God tells him, pursue and you shall surely rescue. David trusts and obeys. Now here's how much he trusts and obeys. As they are chasing the enemy, they are already exhausted. 200 warriors are like, we can't make the journey. We've got to stop. And he says, stay here with the baggage. We're going to keep going. Now this is a great army. But in doing that, what David is saying is, catch this, it's not about numbers now. God has given us the victory. We are going in the power of the Lord. David's response here reminds me so much as he looks to God in his time of distress. It reminds me of a scene between Jesus and Peter as he gives some hard sayings. And you'll remember that a lot of the disciples left. And then Jesus looked to them and said, are you going to leave me to Peter? And in John 6, 68, Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? There is no one else that has the keys to eternal life like you. And here David in his distress seeks God's word. He is hopeless and he looks to the only one who gives him hope that is God himself. And once he receives it, he believes it. Do you see how that works? He receives it and then believes it. He doesn't believe it and then receive it. That's the way it goes. God has spoken. You trust that word. You trust that it will come true rather than sort of saying what's going to come true and it happening. He faces his enemies trusting God's word. What about you? We have a greater priest king now who gives us direct access to God, but we have already received his word in the scriptures. We've received it. We're not like Saul in the distress of his life where he's looking to, to witches, Ouija boards, fortune tellers. We look to God himself and his word. That's our word. That word is our sword. You know, that's what we grab when danger hits and when God says to go and trust me. We grab the word of God. Ephesians 6.17 calls the Bible the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.17 says the Bible is sufficient to equip us for every good work. And Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Are you confident in God's clear word 
to you in the same way that David was. David trusted God's word and he was gone. So how ready are you for facing the losses of this life with the confidence in God's word as your sword? Sometimes I know life can get terrifying, but it only gets scarier if we lose a grip on the word of God and our confidence in who God is. So are you sharpening that sword daily? How are you sharpening the word? Are you having devotions daily in the word? Are you here on Sundays during the preaching to to hold, um, and and you're listening because you're trying to sharpen your sword? It's not like you're daring the pastor to keep you interested and engaged in the word of God. You are actually strongly compelled to listen to the word of God because you believe your life and the lives of others depends on it, not just today or tomorrow, but forever. Can you see how that might be something that would be helpful in sharpening your sword, preparing you for what might come at you tomorrow? I think we've been called to pursue the word of God. David's a good king who seeks God in his distress. But not only that, take note of another way David is a different king. In verses 11 to 5, we see that David give, give, gives to the Egyptian. And you can't miss the irony here. David is on his way to face an enemy who has taken his people off into slavery, and he happens upon an Egyptian slave. You remember the Egyptians, right? The guys who took Israel into slavery, like that's how they became famous. And here he finds this Egyptian slave on the road. And the Egyptians made it big in the Bible by enslaving Israel and placing heavy burdens on their backs. The Egyptian king took before God rescued his people. But catch what happens here when David finds this Egyptian. Verses 11 and 12, this is what it says. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. I mean, you just can't miss this. David raised this Egyptian from the dead after three days and three nights. Okay, figuratively. But his Amalekite master had left him for dead when he got sick. It's not a loving, caring, generous master. See, bad kings take, take, take. But David doesn't use water boring or slap him around to take what he needs from him. No, David gives him water and he gives him bread. And water and bread would have been sufficient to revive him. But then he gives him cake. I mean, where do you get a cake when there's no Costco? He's been running for like 100 miles and he's like, hey, get the cake, get that kid some cake. And he's eating the cake. He's like, I don't know who this guy is, but I like the way he rolls. David's a generous king who comes not for what he can take, but what he can give. And once revived, he tells David that they raided the Negev of the Cherethites and the Negev of Caleb and burned Ziklag with fire, a.k.a. David's house. David asks him to lead him to the Amalekites. And the Egyptian says, sure, just, you know, one thing, maybe two, like, don't kill me. Don't give me back to my master because he has no cake. Now, sometimes God answers our prayers in some surprising ways, doesn't he? Have you ever had God surprise you, not only with his generosity, but the surprising way that he provided for you? And God does it all the time. I see some biblical examples. You'll remember that he used Jesus' death on the cursed cross to bring eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Nobody saw that coming. And then he redeemed enemies of Christ, like Paul, to take the gospel to Gentiles who were far from God. Nobody saw that coming. Do you think David imagined an Egyptian would help him deliver his people from being enslaved by the Amalekites? But there's a fourth thing we see here. Notice this. God's king is victorious to the glory of God. Verse 16. Pick up the story. Here's what he says. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, 
because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Did you catch that? The Amalekites, they thought the Philistines, David, and Israel were all preoccupied. They had come in for an easy kill. They were off partying. So they spread out across the land and had a a drunken party to celebrate just how smart they were in their worldly wisdom. Look what we did. And when they were least suspecting, David relentlessly struck them down all day and all night. Now, you know the enemy was great. Here's how you know. Did you catch how many people David took with him into battle? This point, 400. And did you notice that David relentlessly struck them down day and night and not a man escaped except 400 young men on camels? Wait. Only 400 men, but you only had 400 men. So if the only is 400, then that means there was some great multitude, much greater than 400, that made 400 look small. And he says that small bit, they escaped into the distance, barely with their lives. Now that tells us that David defeated a massive army. Not only that, did you catch that David recovered all that was lost? Everything. Nothing was missing. When they were wandering in the wilderness, back in Exodus 17, do you remember that story? That's where they are attacked and they fight back and Moses is lifting his arms and as long as he lifts his arms, Joshua is defeating the Amalekites, but when they start to lower, they begin to make a comeback. And so as his arms get tired, he has to have a couple of buddies, Aaron and Hur, come and hold them up. And as he holds them up, they defeat and they win. And after that defeat, what we find is that God promises Moses that he would eventually blot out the Amalekites one day. The Amalekites will be dealt with. And hundreds of years later, God told Saul to take out the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. That king disobeyed. But here is God's spirit-anointed king going out and fighting the Amalekites, fulfilling God's purposes in part. Isn't God so patient? I can barely wait it in and out for my order to come in. And this is God saying, I'm going to deal with this. And here is centuries later, God dealing with it. Here we see the mighty arm of God was with God's King David. The victory was God's. And God's King rescued, not with sword or spear, but in the power of the Lord. And he recovered all that was lost and then some. And all of it was to the glory of God. Did you catch that? David is continuously pointing credit towards God. So what is God's king going to do with the spoils of war, though? Will he take them? Will he give out quid pro quo? I love this. David's generosity, actually, it, it kind of offends and shocks his men. Did you see that? You'll notice that David gives away non-participation awards in verses 21 to 31. First, he, he meets the baggage guys. Now, you'll remember those 200 guys, they were too tired to keep on. They were too exhausted And so uh, they stayed with the baggage as the others went to a fight. The Amalekite, catch this, they didn't fight. They simply protected the bags. And you wonder how God's king is going to deal with them. Well, in verse 21, he greets them. He doesn't chastise them. But then you'll notice that the others, those who fought, they speak in verses 22 to 25. And notice the outrage and what they think should be done. Here's what they say. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said this, because they did not go with us, We will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. 
But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his shear is who goes down into the battle, so shall his shear be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So David's generosity here, it's not actually according to law, but it's actually a law of grace that he is actually enacting. The one who fights and the one with the baggage gets equal share. How is that fair? It's actually very fair and very gracious if you understand that the victory is the Lord's. See, David understood that they defeated a giant enemy only because of the power of the Lord, not their own strength. And as they understood that they were actually those who had experienced the grace of God more, the more gracious they would become. See, those men who fought were worthless because their eyes were more on their net worth than the God who gave them all they possessed. Don't miss this. David's not greasing palms or offering quid pro quo. David's doing what kings do. He's fighting for his people and he's sending back generous gifts of the spoils of his enemies. Because that's what messiahs do. David is saying the king is coming. The king is coming to his throne. It is time. Now, as we close, I I think there's some things that we need to draw from this by way of practical application. First is, look with me quickly in Romans 8. We think about the nature of what's happening for us as New Testament Christians as we read the story of David. And here we find that David was a generous king. Generous king who trusted in the power of the Lord. But David eventually fell. He eventually took censuses and and put trust in numbers. Uh, He was a man who later put confidence in his money. He was one who ascended in the future. He proved that he was not ultimately the ultimate Messiah that we all long for. He was one that pointed towards a greater king, King Jesus. King who came not for what he could get, but what he could give. And I love the connection between the one who gave all and our generosity and our confidence in his generosity in Romans 8. This is what he says... After talking about how God has saved us and the glorious plan of salvation, he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and and we just saw that he is, who can be against us? He who did not spare or take or keep his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? Do you have that vision of God? And that's the reason that he sent his son was to save us It was a massive display of how generous our God is. A God who does not hold back from his people. A God who says, if I gave you my son, that is the beginning, the first fruits. And there is much more to come. Is that the God that you believe in? See, God's king is generous because he is a small picture of his great God who is really generous. Not only that, notice second. Not only is God generous, but we know that it is God who defeated our spiritual enemies through Jesus, his king, at the cross. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him being Jesus. Jesus is the triumphant king who goes into battle and fights for us. And he disarmed the principalities and the, the powers of darkness that we might be found victorious. Not only that, we find that Jesus is our victorious king of grace. Third, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, where we are told, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him 
everywhere. What's that fragrance? It is the fragrance of salvation from sin. We are a people who have been rescued. You see it? Jesus is our great king. Fourth, the king of grace promises that he will restore what has been taken from us and then some. You remember? It wasn't just that they received back the spoils that had been taken, but it was the, and then some. The spoil of the other peoples that they had raided and taken. We find in the New Testament that we are promised that our losses become promises. Those losses actually become promises of things that God will restore. In fact, in Mark 10, 29-31, this is a text that's not replenishing what has been lost It's really about the centrality of Jesus and the cross and what he has done for us. And that is the confidence, the message of the gospel, the good news of the good king. It's that whatever it is that you're calculating right now, the math is off if you have not seen what is to come. Fifth, every good gift comes from God through his king to his people. And start recognizing the pervasive goodness of God. And that's what losses can do. What is taken can cause us to forget what we have, what has been given. And if it's God's stuff anyway, how can we get sad? God gives good gifts through his king to his people. Uh, James 1, 16 to 17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. Spiritual gifts come from God. Jesus is generous in giving Christians his spirit. How do you trump that? He gives us himself. We become the place where God himself dwells. What a gift. And that gift comes with gifts. The spirit gives gifts. Gifts of service, like hospitality and greeting. We're about to spend time in a meal. It's been prepared by people, led by the Spirit, to prepare for us to enjoy one another's company. Why? Because the Spirit of God rests here. We have people who have been given the gift of preaching and teaching and discernment. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells here. And what are those gifts for but the building up of the body? Did you catch that? The spiritual gifts that you have, they're not really even for you. They're for those that you are building up, the church. You see it? We have a generous king who gives lavishly so that we can give lavishly to others. See, we need God. He doesn't need us. God doesn't need our gifts. God gives gifts because we need God's gifts. God also gives material gifts. The money that we have in our wallets, the money that we gave to Harvest Offering, that we give to Harvest Offering, that we give week after week. We need to be wise, but we need to be generous. And what we do with our money says something about who God is and how we view God. But six, the greatest defeat, greatest victory, was won by Christ against sin, death, and the devil at the cross greatest deliverance is from God's wrath. And all of that is because we have a generous God who gave his son. The ability to be saved as sinners against a a holy God is because he is a generous God who gave his son. His son to die for us, to die in our place on the cross so that we might be forgiven by God, so that we might become children of God who eat lavishly at his table. So don't leave here today without putting your faith in this Christ. Let me pray for us.
Calvary has bought for me both now and forever. Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866 8999. That's 602 866 8999.
Coming up next is Refining Faith. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Sharon Lee with a Refining Faith. A few years ago, I was involved in a car accident. A car taking a left turn hit my car on the side while I was going straight. Fortunately, the accident wasn't that serious. The other driver admitted the fault and gave me their insurance company information. I called the other driver's insurance company and reported the accident. The insurance company said they would contact me after investigating the details about the accident. I thought it would only take a day or two, but they did not call me back even after a few weeks. I needed my car fixed soon. I was also getting pains in my shoulder and needed to have my shoulder looked at. And I was starting to worry because I did not hear anything from the insurance company. I wanted to have the car fixed first, so I brought my car to a body shop. But then they said the car was totaled. I was financially tight at the time, and the burden of having to buy a new car made me upset. And then not-so-nice thought came to me. I complained to God why He allowed something like this to happen despite me serving Him to the fullest and volunteering at the church and heart and soul gospel ministry with all my heart. I let out my complaint and said that if he was God, he should have prevented the accident from happening to me, who was obeying him wholeheartedly. But then God began to correct such wrong thoughts in my heart. He gave me this question in my heart. What if the accident happened because God did not prevent it from happening on purpose and not because he could not prevent it from happening? In other words, what if the accident happened because God allowed it to happen? And through this question, I began to study about God's sovereignty. There are a lot of things happen around us every day. Among them are tragedies that makes us so sad even just thinking about them. Things happen that make people feel resentful. Tragic accidents happen that make people become disabled. And even things happen that cause people to face the death of their children. What will be the first thing that will come to our mind when things like this happen? Perhaps we would cry out and say, God, why did you leave this to happen to me? Where were you? But if we continue to think about this long and hard, we see ourselves thinking as if things are happening outside of God's sovereignty. When I had a car accident, the same thought made me complain about why he did not prevent the accident from happening. Bible teacher K. Arthur points out that when disasters happen to us and we say that God does not allow disasters from happening, it's the same as saying that there is a greater being than God. Can you agree with what she said? We firmly believe that what is good in our eyes is what God allowed us to have and thank God for His grace. But when sad or difficult things happen, we say Satan caused them to happen, and we often complain why God didn't prevent them from happening. But if the devil has caused such sad or difficult things to happen, and God could not prevent them from happening, as we say, who can we truly rely on, and with whom can we consult about them? If a drunk driver hits a child on the street, and the child dies, does it mean that the drunk driver has more power than God? 
Is he such a powerful man who even God cannot manage and cannot do anything about? You know that is never the case. Then we must admit that even such tragedies happen because God allowed them to happen. Because nothing can happen outside of um, God's sovereignty without Him allowing them to happen. But a lot of us find it very difficult to accept this fact. Because we think the God we know would not allow such tragic things to happen. We think He allows only good things to happen and does not allow bad things to happen. But if someone says, The God I know and love would not allow tragedies to happen. He or she believes in a God who he or she created in his or her own standards. Because in the Bible, we can see that God does allow such tragedies to happen. God said in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39, See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 6 and 7 also bear witness to God in the same way. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. It is not easy to admit God's sovereignty. And God does not impose his sovereignty on us. God speaks and works through our lives and lets us experience and learn about his sovereignty on our own. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In one of the Korean translation versions, it says, Thank in any situations. The NIV version translates this verse as, Give thanks in all circumstances. This includes situations that are hard, difficult, sad, resentful, and even miserable. We can be thankful when we are happy and joyful, but how can we be thankful when things are difficult, hard, and sad? That is possible only when you realize God's sovereignty. We will discuss God's sovereignty in more detail next time. It is my prayer that you will experience God's sovereignty throughout the week. This has been Refining Faith, signing off. Oh
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.